The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone. Welcome, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm pleased to host our eighth installment in the series, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. This will be the third program in a series on contemporary archaeological topics. We're exploring the unique ways in which this field is practiced in the new millennium. Our most recent episodes address topics that don't so much deal with uh, cultures of antiquity as they do with applications of archaeology to contemporary life. We've called this, uh, in previous programs, the archaeology of relevance. Two weeks ago, we discussed the Veterans Curation Project, a unique venture that enlisted the services of returning Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans to sort and classify artifact collections that had been gathering dust in museum vaults for decades. Last week, we examined the laws that govern the treatment of archaeological properties when such sites are endangered by development interests. Our guests, uh, Tom F. King and Lynn Sebastian, helped craft this legislation and explained to the listenership how the laws work, what the steps were to enforce and secure the preservation or removal of archaeological sites in the event of development. This week's program changes focus a bit to the practitioners and professionals who undertake the work of what is best known as compliance archaeology. As we discussed last week, the impetus for the legislation itself is rooted in the environmental and heritage preservation movements of the late 1960s and early 1970s. In conjunction with the large-scale implementation of these programs, the cultural resource management industry grew initially on a small scale and at university facilities where academic departments found a little niche for faculty and students to develop skills on local projects. In short order and in response to ever larger development ventures, the need for larger scale and efficient workforces and strategies led to the growth of the private sector. Small and then larger companies formed cultural resource management wings, typically housed in environmental departments or engineering firms. And as demand increased yet further, companies dedicated almost solely to cultural resources and archaeology came onto the scene. And that sort of places us effectively in the late 1970s and early 1980s. With me to discuss these developments and to provide eyewitness accounts of the cultural resource industry's growth are two of the more successful veterans of the private sector. 
Bill Doley and Don Weir are principals and founders of Enduring Companies in the cultural resources profession. And in their careers, they've witnessed the range of changes in the industry, and they have a lot to say about its direction generally. More significantly, I think, they offer some perspective as to what the future holds for cultural resources in particular, and because of that industry's hold on the profession for archaeology's future as a whole. My first guest, Bill Doley, received his Ph.D. from the University of Arizona in 1980. He's currently the president and sole owner of Desert Archaeology Incorporated and president and CEO of the nonprofit Center for Desert Archaeology. His research interests are the large-scale demographic and cultural changes in the American Southwest and Mexican Northwest from A.D. 1200 to 1700, preservation of archaeological sites, and sharing research results with the public are his other professional priorities. Desert Archaeology was founded in 1989 and is based in Tucson, Arizona, with a branch office in Phoenix, Arizona. The firm currently has 37 employees and works primarily within the state of Arizona. In 2009, Archaeology ma a Magazine named Desert Archaeology's project documented, documenting the early irrigators from 3,000 years ago in Tucson as one of the top 10 discoveries of the year. The nonprofit uh, Center for Desert Archaeology, of which Bill is also the head, is based in Tucson and conducts, preser conducts preservation archaeology in the American Southwest and, again, in the Mexican Northwest. The center maintains an active program of site protection through education, site ownership, and holding of conservation easements. Funding comes from grants, memberships, private donors, and endowment earnings. My second guest, Donald J. Weir, received his master's in uh, anthropology for Michigan State University in 1979. He presently serves as Chief Executive Officer of Commonwealth Cultural Resources Group, CCRG. CCRG was founded in 1988 by Don Weir, who was at that time the manager of the cultural section in the engineering firm of Gilbert Commonwealth. For 21 years, uh, CCRG has served its clients in all phases of archaeological investigations, geospatial analysis, a full range of laboratory analysis, and above-ground resource studies. CCRG's technical expertise has a special emphasis on pipeline, transportation, and other linear corridor projects. Don has served on the board of the American Cultural Resources Association and served as a treasurer from 1997 to 2004 at that organization and from 2011 to the present. He has also been on the board of directors for the Society of Historical Archaeology and is presently on its budget committee. Since CCRG's acquisition of another firm called Coastal Carolina Research Incorporated of Tarboro, North Carolina, Don Weir has served as the head of CCRG's family of companies and as chief executive officer. I want to welcome you both uh, to the program and I'm honored to have you with me. Thank you for the kind introduction. Let's start with you, Bill. Um, can you just sort of give us a little bit of historic perspective, if you would, as to how uh, the, the firms emerged from sort of the background of the environmental and preservation movement and how uh, private archaeological companies came into being and took root and uh, how you see yourself playing in that? Sure, be happy to. Uh, really, things... Initially, were done often out of uh, museum environments or academic departments, 
and you had major programs, uh, reservoir salvage programs, uh, programs back in, in the uh, Great Depression of uh, where archaeology was done as essentially make jobs uh, under work project uh, administration, those kinds of things. So there was there was a federal and government um, an academic kind of partnership there in those early days. And with the passage of the laws that you were discussing last week, particularly the National Environment, um, Environmental Policy Act and the National Historic Preservation Act, the focus on addressing archaeological um, work, research, and uh, assessment of, of potential impacts became much more a task that was done prior to projects. We hear, hear about things happening in front of the bulldozer. Well, that's sort of the old way of doing it, and uh, it became much more integrated into the planning process. And really, as the scale of work um, increased, academic and, and uh, departments often weren't able to uh, put the kind of workforce out there to work year-round, to get the uh, work done in a timely manner, and gradually uh, private firms began to step into that role and organize and create really um, fairly complex infrastructures uh, to have a business side, a uh, field work side, an analysis side, a report production side. So there's been quite an evolution of uh, this discipline of uh, private sector uh, research and compliance uh, over that course. And you, as you said, the, the 70s really were sort of the pioneers. Um, my firm didn't get started until the 1980s, and it was really the mid-80s, I think, that, that these private sector firms took off. And uh, you see now almost all of the work is being done in private sector settings rather than the traditional academic settings. And you, your own firm, how did you get started with that? What gave you the motivation to start? And did you start out in a company, or how did how did your career get started as a as a principal, basically? Of a as a graduate student, I had worked in a museum setting um, again in those early days in the 1970s. Uh, I had then in 1982 founded a a division of a nonprofit organization uh, here in Tucson, Arizona. That was called the Institute for American Research, the Arizona Division. And as we grew, um, our desire for independence and, and uh, need to kind of manage our own destiny resulted in my buying out the assets of that organization and forming, again, at that point, the, both the nonprofit and the for-profit firm. So we started um, was just myself and my wife was pregnant at the time, so it was like a one point uh, one person um, operation <laughs> as as we started way back in nineteen eighty two and we've uh, developed over the years into a firm as you said with thirty seven uh, permanent employees so it's been a we've tried to keep a sort of stable workforce and to focus our um, efforts here within the state of Arizona for the most part. And Don, your experience on that, how did you get started? <clears throat> well, my experience started a little earlier than Bill's. I was um, initially hired by 
a large architecture and engineering firm in late 1973. Um, it, that was before the enactment of the National Historic Preservation Act and the Section 106 requirements. So I was hired to work on um, NEPA projects. As Bill mentioned, it's a National Environment Policy Act. So we were archaeologists um, as part of larger teams of resource specialists, including biologists, landscape architects, um, foresters, that, that were looking at primarily large power plants and trans- transmission lines and looking at all the resources and how they would be affected by siting these, these projects. Uh, so it, it was sort of, um, it was pre, uh, you know, Section 106, and I think it was a, a wonderful experience to, to sort of grow up in, in um, the archaeology from a, a NEPA process because we learned that ar- archaeological and historical resources were only one of a lot of resources that had to be considered when you're looking at the impacts of large projects. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, and once the uh, National Historic Preservation Act was passed in 74, we, we continue to, to grow and be quite successful as part of an engineering firm. And we had, we conducted projects all over the country. In fact, Joe was part of that process, so he can correct me if I'm wrong. That's um, true. But, but by, by 1988, um, the branch office I was working for um, was being closed, and uh, I needed to make a decision of either going to Pennsylvania, where Joe was, or staying in in Michigan and starting my own company, which was the obvious choice for me. Uh, we we will off- we will come back with Don's uh, business development in a couple of sec in a couple of minutes, right after these words. Stay sure. tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks very much, Joe Schuldenrein, uh, back with you, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, I'm talking with uh, two archaeological entrepreneurs, gentlemen who have founded their own companies in archaeology, and uh, Don Weir was telling us exactly how he branched off from a parent environmental company to effectively start his own business. And, Don, I'm interested in that transition. I was around at that time, obviously, as you know. How did you actually facilitate that transition? Well, with the announcement that Gilbert Commonwealth was closing their Jackson, Michigan office, um, I made the decision that I wanted to stay in Jackson and start my own company. And so I approached um, Gilbert Commonwealth about assuming the existing contracts, set up a partnership with, at that time, with Donna Roper, and about five employees. And um, we went private at that point. Um, we stayed as a, a, a partnership until 1999 or 1992 when I became the sole owner and uh, uh, CCRG was incorporated. Um, we, I stayed as president of CCRG till 2009 when I became the chief executive officer, and my son Andrew Weir took over as president. Um, we have about 40 full-time employees in five offices. Um, most of our offices stretch across the Great Lakes, except for Coastal Carolina Research, which is North Carolina. So it allows us to do large multi-state projects that run any place from the uh, East Coast up through the Great Lakes. Before we get into larger questions of cultural resources management and archaeology, I'm interested in your perspectives on a timeline from when you developed your companies, and we're talking here about the late 1980s into the 90s. How did your growth occur? Was it fluid? Was it uniform? Were there ups and downs? Were there peaks and valleys in the growth trend? Uh, Bill, on your end, and if you could give us some uh, some background to that growth trend uh, based on the economic and political situations in the country at the time. Sure. The Coming to Tucson uh, in 1982, uh, the economy was not good. Uh, and again, it was uh, a matter of I had just lost a job in a private firm over in uh, California, and I, because I had gone to graduate school in the at the University of Arizona, it was sort of like, well, time to head back home. And so, from that point of getting a small contract that first year, very soon after uh, coming back to Tucson and being able to go off of unemployment uh, before. My daughter was born a few months later. Um, those first couple years were quite small, three or four um, additional part-time employees. Uh, by, though, 1984, uh, started to get a few more contracts, and we hired, we probably had about 10 
to 12 people by the end of 84. Uh, some of those folks are still with me today. So we've had a long-term uh, stability in our staff. It was early um, or late, very late uh, 80s, early 90s, we got one very large contract, which, uh, again, sort of we had a spurt of growth at that point. And then it's been sort of oscillations uh, since about the mid-90s. So we've had this uh, 35 to 38 uh, people on a full-time staff, and we gear up to maybe 50, 75, 100 employees on on big projects for for a while. But um, we've seen – we got nearly caught in a very difficult situation in 1988 when – the real estate uh, environment. Uh, Charlie Keating is a name the national audience might remember as uh, the so-called savings and loan scandal. Uh, He was one of our clients on a big private development on the north side of Tucson, and we almost lost our shirts at that point. That was Uh, Lincoln Securities, if I remember. Lincoln Savings, yes. Yeah, right. Um, So at that point, we also started to try to diversify more Having a better balance between private sector clients and and uh, various levels of, of government clients. So, um, but the there's this industry is very affected by national economic conditions and as well as more localized ones. Um, housing industry things related to development are all key factors that um, and the Southwest. Uh, again, Tucson and Phoenix are right in the middle of a, of a huge population uh, increase uh, over the last 25, 30 years. So there's been a lot of development. So they're even in relatively slow economic times. It seems like there's been a fair amount of uh, work that has kept us busy. So, so this is an interesting contrast because you're in, you're in the Sun Belt. You're in an area that's uh, basically, obviously, right now hit, hitting some hard times. But by and large, over the course of this this 30 or 35 year period that we're talking about, this is an area that's been on a basic growth trend. Don, you live in Michigan, that's and right. uh, the trends basically are just the opposite and have been stagnant probably for a very long time. I'm sure some of my Michigan friends will uh, will want to argue with me, but by and large, how have you been able to maintain your business model in well, a state? Well, as Bill which has ind- been indicated, you know, diversification is the answer. Um, we we don't exactly follow um, the economy. We, we either run before or after the economy because we work primarily on large infrastructure projects like highways and pipelines and transmission lines, power plants, that kind of stuff. So when the, the economy goes sour, those projects that are already in, under development don't stop. So we keep working for a couple of years. What happens to us is that during the deaths of a recession, um, they don't plan those projects anymore. So it takes us a couple of years to get back going when the, the economy recovers. So, so we're in the same cycle. It's just a little delayed for us. But how we have found to, to to cope with that is diversification. We keep a balance of uh, private sector clients and, and government clients, and, and tends to us in the past. And I'm not sure this is going to be true for the future. Is when our private sector clients were down, our government clients were up. 
uh, and that, that provided a nice balance. We, we did very little work for private developers except out of our New York office. And again, that runs exactly with the economy. As long as the economy is booming, private people and companies are developing um, projects. And, and in the case of our New York, it's a state-level law, not a federal-level law, that prompted most of that work. And the other thing that you have going on, Don, is that you have to branch out into other states because uh, you have a, you have a larger you have a larger base, and you probably have to have it, don't you? Well, absolutely. We we um, we could not be a viable business in just Michigan alone. So we work in all the surrounding states uh, on a regular basis, um, and again with a good mix of private. In government clients and a large regional base, um, we've been very successful and very um, constant over the years. Um, we're again, like Bill, we're about about 40 full-time employees. You know, we go up to 100 or so in, in the summer um, with with seasonal employees. Um, you know, some of our pipe, some of our big projects like a pipeline we did across. Um, Illinois, you know, we would have, you know, 100, 200 people in the field for a year or so. And, um, you know, those those projects have helped sustain the downturns for us. Let's discuss a little bit about the difference between private and public sector work. Bill, I imagine that your public sector work is large because uh, where you are, there's a large percentage of federal lands so that you can contract with uh, the Bureau of Land Management, you can contract with the U.S. Forest Service, and a variety of other planning agencies that hold federal property. Is that correct? Well, it's actually, for us, it's uh, somewhat like uh, Don. There are most often their major infrastructure projects, so um, highways uh, as you Uh bump up the quantity of uh, people living in a place, they instantly demand better freeways and, and uh, faster transportation options. So that's been, there's been a lot of investment in the highway infrastructure in the state of Arizona. The other, uh, the first really large project that we had was actually the Bureau of Reclamation raising the height on a dam, and so it was a reservoir-type um, uh, project that uh, really caused our, our big bump in the early 1990s. So a lot of the work on things like the Forest Service, um, the Bureau of Land Management, those are not particularly well-funded um, agencies when it comes down to managing archaeological resources on the ground. So those tend to be uh, survey-type projects, um, trying to get a handle on what kind of uh, inventory of, of resources they have on their land or in the case of the forest, getting ready for some kind of a uh, 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 tree uh, harvesting um, activity on on the forest. So those we smaller firms tend to do much better at those. Um, you, you can put a small team out on the ground. So we, we've kind of looked for those medium and large size projects to really keep us going as our kind of bread and butter. So yeah, if you're at a threshold, yeah, go ahead, Don. Sorry. Um, you know, we do a lot of Forest Service projects, and um, we're able to do that because of the scale of the projects. We have 
think we're on our third five-year IDIQ contract with the um, Lake States Force. So we do all the cultural resources work for, I think, five or six national forests. So in a typical year, we'll survey 30,000 acres, um, 30 to 40,000 acres. So for, for us as a larger company, um, you know, it's tough for us to compete on a small forest service contract, but when we're able to, you know, have an agency that will bundle a lot of work together, we can be very competitive. We will come back and discuss some broader issues of the discipline, basically the increasingly prominent role that cultural resources management plays in the general structure of archaeology in North America and in many other parts of the world once we get back after these messages. Thank you. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarch.com. Now, back to the program. 
Joe Schildenrein, and I'm back with uh, this sec- segment of our program on private sector archaeology. I've been talking to uh, Bill Doley and Don Weir, who are both very successful uh, entrepreneurs and uh, business owners of private archaeological firms. Uh, as we have been discussing, uh, the business of, of cultural resources management has become uh, from ha- has uh, changed in terms of its influence on the archaeological scene from being a minor component of what archaeology was, say, about 50 years ago, to now being the absolute monster on the block in terms of how much archaeology is done under the umbrella of cultural resources management. Uh, Don, why don't you give us a little sense of the proportion and the numbers that we're talking about with respect to how much cultural resource management work does for archaeology generally? Yeah, the the numbers are are sort of hard to, to get to. And the reason for that is because the federal government doesn't recognize cultural resource management as an industry and doesn't track it through government statistics. So several people in the past have, have tried to extrapolate numbers uh, on how big the profession is, and, and I'll just throw them out. And some of the estimates are, and these were based on, Surveys conducted by professional organizations such as the Society for American Archaeology, Society for Historic Archaeology, and American Cultural Resource Association, based based on information they have gathered, it is estimated that approximately 14,000 archaeologists are currently work outside the academic setting. Um, that includes um, archaeologists working in agencies. Of that, um, about 9,000 are employed at CRM firms. Um, the number of companies are both large, you know, uh, and very small projects are someplace in the 2,000 range. And the annual expenditures on archaeology has been placed between 600 million and a billion annually. So this is a major, major figure, even even by national standards on, on budgets. I mean, a billion dollars is, is still right. a whole lot of money. And I think, you know, you have to take those numbers um, <coughs> with a grain of salt. They're extrapolated from other numbers. Uh, I think that there is a push on through the American Cultural Resource Association this year to get a better handle on those numbers. So maybe this time next year will know better, but I think these are, you know, in our believable numbers at this point. And Bill, is that what you're hearing as well? Do you have any other fix on this? Or I think that's very much um, the same numbers that I'm aware of, and I think that underscoring that federal agencies, uh, state agencies, uh, and then oftentimes even at the level of local government, there are professionals in government contexts, and they're at each of those levels maybe hiring uh, contractors to do work on development projects and, and planning projects. So it has very much integrated into all different levels of our kind of national uh, governmental structure, and private firms are required to very often do uh, archaeological assessments and investigations prior to their housing developments or anything that's permitted by uh, a federal agency. So it's it's very 
uh, broadly integrated into our, our national economy now. So we have two opposing trends here, basically, because as we all know, the monies that are allocated by the government and even by private funding agencies for pure research objectives has gone down drastically, while because of the legislation <clears throat> and because of the, uh, the need for compliance, the numbers for that type of archaeology, if you want to call it cultural compliance, as being a, a component of archaeology, they're skyrocketing. And so how, how is this changing the face of archaeology and how is that situation being addressed by the institutions, specifically academic institutions that are training the archaeologists for the future? Uh, Bill, you want to weigh in on that first? Sure, I can start that one. Um, well, the I think there's academic programs have always focused uh, on producing PhDs who then go on and teach and do research and and reproduce that uh, kind of academic uh, uh, environment in in a new generation. The early on in my work, we had a lot of people who had a lot of field experience. Um, only a few of them had master's degrees, and but strong field experience. But over time, uh, for example, we've had six of our employees either through projects that we were working on or by being supported by those projects um, take that information and actually uh, write a dissertation or support themselves through through graduate school. So there's in the cultural resource management arena, the principal investigators, the people who run projects are very much um, moving more toward a, uh, a PhD is a, is a requirement. But there's a lot more room for people with master's degrees, uh, people who are able to uh, run small projects, do specialized analyses. Uh, so I think that's one of the areas that um, the academic world has, uh, I think there's been a lot of discussion of bringing master's programs to the fore uh, that would help create a better workforce for the CRM industry and a little bit less emphasis um, on PhDs. Yeah, and not necessarily successfully. Um, I know that the problem with the lack of funding for pure research in an academic situation is that we'll get, you know, people applying for our senior-level positions with a Ph.D. in hand, with no field experience whatsoever. And it's, it's very difficult to, to put somebody in a senior-level position and have them direct, um, you know, other archaeologists that have 20 or 30 years of field experience. It's, it's very difficult. Um, so how are the academic institutions addressing this issue, if they are at all? Um, you know, there are some programs out there, and I think University of Maryland is a good one. Um, there's one in um, Pennsylvania, I can't think of their name of them offhand, that are, are offering, um, you know, programs that they're trying to integrate, um, you know, CRM into that, and also to provide um, internships for, um, you know, people to get practical experiences. My, my recommendation to people, and, and it may not be, it may be hard for people to do, is take 
time between an undergraduate and a Ph.D. program to, to work for a CRM firm and get some experience doing field work, running I, projects. I would underscore that absolutely. That That is the advice that I repeat again and again in terms of talking to undergraduates that, you know, you you really need to get, you cannot get enough experience in an, in an archaeological field school. Uh, there's a lot of on-the-job on the training that's essential in this industry, and even after you've got 10 years or more of field experience, every archaeological site you go to, there's a learning curve at just getting used to the local dirt and so on. So um, if you're not skilled at that, you're going to have a hard time in this um, industry. And so getting that training early is absolutely uh, of critical importance. Have any of you provided any input into uh, academic institutions that you work with or from whom you get students? It's, it's interesting. To... I've, you know, I give guest lectures at, um, you know, institutions um, you know, around Great Lakes. And usually, you know, I come in and I talk about CRM and what we do. And, and that then it's primarily undergraduate and graduate students in anthropology. And I'll ask who in the crowd is is going to pursue a career in CRM? And in most cases, it's nobody. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's a failure on the, on the on the academic institutions to really tell their students what the reality of the job market is. You know that they're not all going to be professors someplace. We've been working with the. Uh, folks here at the School of Anthropology at the University of Arizona, they've, they're in their second year of a uh, applied uh, cultural resource management-focused um, program. And so I've had a number of discussions with the folks who have pulled together that program, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of, of giving them a broad exposure to the classroom side of things, uh, getting them out also into doing internships. And they've, I gave a talk just uh, a week or two ago um, in one of those kind of core classes for this applied program, and a number of the people there had, I mean, one of them had nine years of previous experience, had, had um, directed um, fairly major excavations. Most of them had at least two to four years of, of field experience. So those are folks who are really following, I think, what Don and I are trying to advise is get that experience and then uh, follow it up with a, the academic um, polishing off. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think the academic is very, very important. And, you know, traditional, um, you know, four-field four approach of anthropology I think it's still relevant to the profession, and I would you know encourage people to do that, but get the practical experience on top of it. And on that note, I think we're going to go to another break, and when we come back, we'll do our last segment and introduce a couple of other areas of interest, and specifically how the change, how archaeology's knowledge base has expanded or changed in the face of. Uh, the growing CRM industry. Thanks. We'll be back. 
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basili, radio to thrive by. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, this is Joe Shilden Ryan, and this is our final segment on Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. We've been talking to um, uh, Bill Doley and Don Weir about the burgeoning cultural resources management industry and how it has changed the face of archaeology over the past 30 and 30, 30 to 40 years. Uh, one item that I think is, is very critical at this time and place is the unique and uh, the unique economic situation that the country and the world finds itself in at this particular point in time um, we are looking at very very difficult times as most of us know uh, we have seen a situation in contrast to that where cultural resources management as a growth industry has if not moved on a uniform uptick has generally grown in, in certainly in waves. I'd like to get your guys' perspective on where things are going right now and what the future holds for the cultural resource management industry and for archaeology in general. Uh, Don, you want to start us off with that? Well, you know, it's something I'm sure we all think about a lot, you know, with what's going on in the economy and, more importantly, what's going on in Washington. I, I, I think we need to think about it a lot, and and um, react to it. Um, I, I had a, a, a private sector client who was a, a major pipeline company, and this is somebody senior in a company, and, and he told me, he said, we don't have any problem with the regulations to do cost of resources. You know, it's, it's part of the process. We've been doing it a long time. Uh, it's not onerous to us. What we have a major problem with is federal agencies 
that don't give us a real clear idea what they want. Um, you know, federal agencies that don't have clear regulations on how to get through their process. So, so I think it's a it's a matter of you know not 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 fighting you know political battles um, in Washington, but more so you know getting the agencies themselves to be more proactive in helping these companies get through the compliance process. It, the, archaeology is not a job killer, um, as some people like to say, and the environment movement as a whole is not a job killer, in my opinion. So you're not seeing this as being a major threat to the compliance movement generally, but as we have seen in, in, in the past 35 years, 40 years that there have been ups and downs in the economy. Uh, we weather them. There are occasionally assaults on, on legislation. Um, but by and large, there seems to be a balance, and you think we'll get through this. Well, I don't think it's industry that is calling for the change. Um, I, I think it's politics that are calling for the change. Uh, Bill? Another point I think to make is that these resources are – uh, important to more than just archaeologists. They're, uh, and that's why the public role in, you know, <coughs> disseminating that information out to a broader audience is a really critical role that our profession, uh, I think, can do better with. But I, I mean, I think we do a, a, a moderately good job, but it can, that needs to be emphasized. Um, having worked out here in the, the Southwest, um, there are major concerns and interests by Native American communities about their ancestral um, archae- or sites and, and places that are important to them on the landscape. And here in the community of Tucson, there's been a great deal of research that is documented about 4,100 years of, of an agricultural uh, presence on this landscape here, right where modern Tucson has grown up. So creating a sense of place for people who are many times from somewhere else, I, I think there's an important role for what we do at that level as well. So trying to be as efficient as possible, I think Don hit an important point there that oftentimes these regulations, even for those of us who work with them on a daily basis, are, are a source of headache um, that trying to figure out what an agency is is um, telling you in, in their, their comments on, on how you're approaching a project, but um, also stressing the positive values for communities and, and uh, national uh, interests are, I think, are important parts of what the CRM industry does and, and should continue to do even better. Yeah, absolutely, and not only other Native Americans are concerned about their past, but 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 so are communities themselves. You know, we we did a project in one of the worst areas of Detroit that had a, a remnant um, Ukrainian community, and and that you know they had great pride in their community, and and the stuff that we were able to research and present to the community was just wonderful, and um, they really supported the project because of what, what it was telling them about, you know, their heritage and their culture. And so you're getting a lot of positive feedback from the local communities in which you're working. And I think 
that's a very, very big contribution that cultural resource management industry has made, just the awareness and, and the uh, the promotion of education in that uh, sector, I think is really important. But but neither one of you feel that the process is, any, is in any serious jeopardy of disappearing because of the political, economic, uh, and economic climates? Well, I, I think we have to be, uh, you know, American Cultural Resources Association is a trade association for CRM firms, and they, in fact, have a lobby firm in Washington that pays very close attention to what's going on in the, in the halls of Congress. And, um, you know, and they alert, you know, people when there is a threat to this, and there's a threat on the table now to transportation enhancement projects. That um, you know, people are writing their congressmen and their and um, trying to get the message out there that this is important to everybody. Bill, in, in the a lot of our work uh, is again building on uh, local community kinds of uh, settings, and and we see the same kind of experience that um, Don was citing that. These are pretty strongly supported. Um, there's always a, you know, individual cases where the cost of a project is is a, a bit of a stress for a particular um, development and that sort of thing. But um, what we see thus far is um, generally a ongoing support for this, uh, the the laws and the, the commitment to focus on. The importance of our cultural resources, and you're seeing that support in Washington as well, or is uh, or is that pretty much divided down party lines, or no? You know, I think in the background of, of the people of this country, there's a, a real interest in uh, history and archaeology, and I think that'll be felt, you know, all the way to the upper levels in Washington. At least I hope it will be. And I would agree. And you would agree with that. Yeah. And so we're not, uh, you're, not, you're not thinking that there's any imminent threat, but that we have to be very vigilant, I yes, guess, is the, is the watchword. Yes. So that, they, that, that, that the gains that have been made don't, uh, don't get chipped away. And on that note, I think we're going to have to uh, bring the discussion to an end. Uh, I want to thank my guests, Bill Doley and Don Weir, for uh, informing this listenership and, and the audience out there with the new and singular ways that archaeology is changing in this 21st century. And again, I'd like to emphasize the significance of relevance in the practice of archaeology and to alert any uh, young and upcoming archaeologist to the needs for the profession going forward. We'll have uh, all have to hone our skills in practical directions at this point as time goes on and as archaeology uh, itself has so much to contribute to these advances. We'll be back next week uh, to discuss another critical issue, the influ- increased role of women in archaeology. As in other academic and implied spheres, women have made great strides in our field and have affected the course of the profession in numerous avenues. Until then, thanks so much for listening. And remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Until next week, this is Joe Schildenrein signing off. Thanks so much, and have a great evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schildenrein. 
Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.